Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. So we're in a series right now on, we're asking some really tough questions. I've had several people just sit down and say, that lesson you taught or that Travis taught just really stretched me beyond where my brain can go. And that's good because that's called exercise. You know how your muscles are sore afterwards? And we're exercising your brain. Uh, on some of this stuff. And so we're asking some really, really tough questions. And the question we're going to look at today, and, and all these, the, the questions we're asking are actually supported by myths about Christianity. And the question people ask almost as it's an accusation, actually, and that is, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? When the real question that they're asking, what's triggering them to ask that question is this, what they're really wanting to know is, doesn't the Bible favor men over women? Doesn't the Bible put women at a disadvantage? And there's so much to cover on this because when we start with some of these myth questions that are out there, trying to respond is like playing whack-a-mole. Because if you try to answer one thing, then another one just pops up and and, and you you never get to answer the one thing. So I want to go behind all of that and get back at the context of what happens. So today, what I want to do, I want to establish some context because context is everything. If you understand scripture in context, most of the myths we're looking at will go away because it simply deals with them. So let's talk. Let me, I, I, let me give you a, a frame of reference to get into this. My wife loves the Harry Potter series. She has read all the books. She has multiple versions of the books. Um, four or five years ago when, when we passed through England uh, on the way to India, her request to me wasn't be safe or come back. It's can you get me an actual English Harry Potter book. And so... I hit every bookstore in London Heathrow trying to find something, and I finally found one and brought it back to her. And they're very different. English is not American. Um, they're quite different. But she loves the Harry Potter series. I enjoy the movies. <laughs> the one area she and I have disagreed is the topic of Severus Snape. So from the first book, he has been one of her favorite characters. And I got to tell you, I've hated that guy since he showed up on screen. You know, I'm going to date myself. I keep asking, what in the world is the Sheriff of Nottingham doing at Hogwarts? But anyhow, she reads the books, I watch the movies. And I'm not going to lie, it irks me that Dumbledore tolerates this guy. Right? I, if you go to a movie, you will know when you, people don't sit next to me at movies, <laughs> is when there's a guy up there and I realize the guy is bad from the beginning, which of course no one else in the theater or the movie knows he's bad. I can spot him. And my first thought is, shoot him. <laughs> shoot him now, you know? Don't wait, just deal with the consequences. Just shoot the guy. And I remember thinking, shoot Snape. 
he's going to be a problem. This is going to be a bad deal, but I disliked him. And there's a pivotal moment. Can you bring up that first picture, that first graphic? So there is a pivotal moment in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince where Dumbledore makes a sad, desperate plea. And you see him, he says, Severus, please. Dumbledore is surrounded by enemies who are intent to torture him and kill him. And he looks at Snape and he makes this plea and instead of coming to his rescue, Snape kills him right there. And the scene, the scene is devastating, except for me. I'm going, should have shot him. You know, this would have fixed the problem. But what I saw in that scene of Severus, please, what I saw validated my, predisp my predisposition, my presuppositions about Snape's betrayal of Dumbledore and that Snape was just bad. Now it's not until the last, last, uh, not until the last book when Harry extracts memories from dying Snape's tears that we learn of Snape's love for Harry's murdered mother. We see a replay. We see Snape's anguish as Voldemort kills Lily. We see Snape secretly commit himself to Dumbledore. We see how Dumbledore told Snape that he was dying from a, the slow working of an irrevocable curse. And we hear Snape reluctantly, but at Dumbledore's insistence, pledge to kill Dumbledore when the moment comes. And suddenly, now that we know the beginning of the story as well as the end of the story, well, I started to realize how wrong I was. And so now I see this scene of Severus, please, in a new light. It's not a betrayal. It's an act of intense love and loyalty. So my failure to actually read the books, still not gonna. But my failure to read the books enabled my presuppositions to lead me in the opposite direction of the reality of the truth, right? If we read random biblical texts about men and women only in the light of what we've heard or of our own presuppositions, they don't make sense. In fact, what they do is they cause confusion that leads to the wrong, the wrong answer. But if we dive into a fluent view of redemptive history and we see God at work through all of it from beginning to end we see how God has dealt with men and women from the beginning it starts to have new meaning like Snape's actions the key to understanding the biblical view of men and women is to actually read the Bible's view of men and women and not just watch for the trailers on YouTube to actually get in. And what we begin to find out as we read it in context is God's 
biblical statements about men and women are are a story of a relentless love for humanity. So let's dive in. Introduction. God metaphorically reveals himself in both genders. When we talk about sex and gender, we instinctively start with our own cultural biases. We instinctively start with our own biological focus. We instinctively start with the backdrop of history as painted by biased, self-interested, flawed humans. So we need to go back further than all that and go beyond human motivation, and we need to begin to understand God is not constrained by biology. God could have made humans capable of asexual reproduction like amoebas. Whoop, another one, (laughs) right? He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, God created male and female as living metaphors of the relationship he wants to have with us. Maybe this will help a little bit. In biblical terms, parenthood is designed to illustrate for us God's relationship with us, his children. So God created male and female to have children so that we could understand God's love for his children. He didn't start with people and children, and they go, oh, hey, I should use this. It was created for this purpose, for us to understand. We know the fatherhood metaphors about God, mostly, largely, because of Jesus teaching us to pray, and it begins our Father. And so we look at that and we think, oh, wow, look how solid that is. You realize Jesus also used motherhood metaphors to refer to God as well. Remember, there's a point when he's crying over Jerusalem, he's weeping over Jerusalem, and he says, I wish that I could gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Why? To protect them from what's coming. The Old Testament was full of motherhood metaphors. Isaiah 49. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? It's a rhetorical question. So the obvious answer is what? No, she can't forget. But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. Isaiah 66, I will comfort you as a who? Mother comforts her child. So the Bible illustrates both Illustrates God as both mother and father. Now in Genesis, we see God create humanity. God creates both genders, and he creates them how? In his image, in his likeness. So when someone is in their image or in their likeness, I mean, if my kids are here, you can identify my kids because they look like me. Fortunately, the daughter looks more like her mom. And when she was first born, people are saying, well, well you know, what, who she look like? She looked like you or Steph. And I'm like, doesn't matter, works out well either way. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, well, if she looks like her mom, she's going to marry money and be able to take care of her dad in his old age. And if, he looks like his, if she looks like her dad, she's going to be available to take care of her dad in her old age. So... 
So you have this language evokes really three things. It evokes a child resembling a parent in his likeness, in our image, a child resembling a parent, a royal heir of a king, and then also a physical representation of God. And that image language refers, it applies to male and female together. Now, in Genesis 2, God forms the man out of the dust, which I find so fascinating because God makes man out of dirt and then puts him responsible for caring for dirt. Isn't that interesting? Genesis 2.18 then the Lord God said, it is not good, circle not good, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a what? Circle helper, we're going to come right back to it, who is just right for him. So God's constant refrain in Genesis 1 as he's creating it, at the end of each day, he looks at it and says, this is good, this is good, this is good. So for God to come back and say that the individual human is not good is a little bit jarring in our culture where feelings matter more than let's just deal with the reality. <laughs> the reason he says that is because that man alone cannot fully image God. He needs a completion. He needs a helper, a completer. So this is our first Severus Snape moment, by the way where we're figuring out maybe we've misunderstood. In our minds, helper sounds like someone who's subordinate, right? Helper sounds like someone who is a lower, a lower role. It sounds like someone who is created only to help to be an assistant. But if you go to the Old Testament and you look up all the times that it uses the word helper, do you know who the word helper usually refers to? God. The same that is applied to the woman is applied to the creator of the universe. God cannot be in an inferior, in an inferior subordinate status. So what happened here? All right, number one, here we go. Sin broke our fellowship. So Man and woman were originally unified. And to show their equality, where God made man out of the raw materials of the dirt, God made the woman out of already refined materials. He made her out of the completed man to show that they were one, that they belonged together. Genesis 2. <laughs> I love this. At last! Do you realize why he's yelling at last? Adam has been inventorying all the animals in the garden. Looking for someone who can talk to him. And so far, all the animals are coming up in pairs. And Adam's like, well, that one looks like that one. That one looks like that one. That one looks like that one. Now God's brought the woman out. And Adam's like, that one looks like me. That's what he's talking about. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman 
because she was taken from man. So then what I love in the next verse in Genesis is it lays out God's plan for the couple before the plan has even happened. They didn't have a mother and father, but God says, here's, what's, here's where this is going. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united, how? Into one. They're going to become one person. So that sexual act joins man and woman into an intimate relationship as they become fruitful and as they multiply. God created them to become his image bearers. Not just in that they look like him, but that they can create like him, that they can procreate like him. And God makes them, in essence, the same, and yet there are differences. And still, he takes the differences and pulls them into one. In Genesis 3, the couple breaks the only law God gave them. Remember what that was? You can eat of anything in the entire garden, just one tree, leave it alone. Don't mess with that tree. And the construction of that story is significant because the man is commanded, don't eat from that tree before God creates the woman. Then when the mysterious serpent approach approaches the woman, do you ever wonder, this has always bugged me, where exactly is the man? I mean, there's only two of them, so it's not like he's off fishing with a buddy, right? Not like he's not around. The answer is in verse 6, Genesis 3, 6. She also gave some of the fruit to her husband who was where? With her. So he lets the deception play out. And rather than expressing truth, the man affirms the deception. And their disobedience together as one broke humanity's relationship with God, but it broke the relationship between humans and not just male and female. It broke the relationship between all of us. So now intimacy and innocence are replaced by blame and by shame. Selflessness gives way to selfishness their joint rebellion in the middle of a perfect environment brought two immediate and long, long enduring, long-term consequences, very real changes for them. We still experience them today. Genesis 3. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. And in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, I want you to understand that last one. That last one is not necessarily a prescription. It's more of a diagnosis than it is a prescription. And here again is another Severus Snape woman. That's a moment. That's a, 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 a warning that their rebellion against God in eating that fruit has opened the gate to selfish competition between the two of them. That's what's coming. They both, because they both chose sin, they have created an environment now in which sin is going to expand, and that sin of, that's expanding is going to include disrespecting and disregarding each other. 
that's the consequence. God is saying to you, what you did with that fruit, what comes next is not what I had in mind. It's not my plan. Verse 17, and to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. So every time I have to go out and mow and pull weeds, I'm thinking about Adam. I don't know if we're allowed to hit people in heaven, but I just might. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. So gone is their oneness. Gone is the harmony that they had together. Gone is their confidence. Gone is their security. I love where it says the two were naked and they were not ashamed. Not many of us have ever experienced that. So present now is a very human brokenness to protect myself by being in control of the people I'm around. Throughout the Old Testament, what we see is we see that that first sin resulted in the appalling treatment of women by men for thousands of years and the appalling treatment of men by women. That's got to be added. We see murder. We see rape. We see exploitation. But again, this is a diagnosis. This is not a prescription. Unlike what a lot of atheists would have you think when they go and they piecemeal cherry pick the Bible and throw it out, out of context, the Bible does not endorse any of that sinful behavior ever. Never does it endorse it. What it does is it reports it honestly. It just tells us what happened. It doesn't try to make anyone look good. It's just a realistic picture of how badly you and I treat each other. You say, well, I don't treat anybody bad. Really? Where have you been the last two years? Arguing about masks. <laughs> Judging people because they disagree with you on something. What the Bible does is it just warns us, listen, we abuse power when we have it, even if the power is just in our heads. So how does the rest of the biblical story make sense of what Genesis said about men and women? And let's just stay with the marriage theme, because that's where men and women are going to be closest, right? Number two, God wants to restore our relationship to the original plan. So he wants to restore our relationship with him. Remember, God would come into the garden at night and walk around the garden in person with Adam and Eve and talk about the garden. What a beautiful way to live. He wants to restore the relationship between husband and wife, between men and women in general, between men and men and women and women, because he wants us to have that kind of fellowship, that kind of unity together. But that relationship between the husband and wife finds a fresh meaning when God's covenant with his people is pictured as a marriage. Isaiah, this goes way back, Isaiah 54. Talking to Israel, he says, For your creator will be who? Your husband. So sometimes the Old Testament uses parenting metaphors, and sometimes 
You know, it likens God to a father. Sometimes it likens God to a mother. But when it uses the marriage metaphor, God is always the husband. Always the husband. And as we read through the Old Testament, especially, we start to find out this marriage between God and his people is not a happy marriage. <laughs> There's a lot of foolishness goes on there. God's people are unfaithful to him by worshiping idols. Now, to be clear, the implication is not that women are naturally less faithful to men, to their husbands, or than men. In fact, I think we can actually make a case the other way. The Old Testament paints a horrible picture of men. If you actually read what God says about men in the Old Testament, even the men would be yelling off with their heads. I mean, it's just, we, are, we behave badly. And so there's this real picture of licentiousness and debauchery that's associated with men. But in the biblical metaphor, God is unrelenting. God pursues and gives special honor to his bride. And you see that reflected in what Jesus says and what the New Testament says. God desires this loving, unified relationship with him. And he gets jealous when it's not there. That's the appropriate response of a spouse to adultery, right? When your loved one cheats. But God is forgiving. God wants this intimate, loving, faithful, united relationship with people. And that's why he chose the marriage, me the more, the marriage metaphor. He wants us to understand, this is the unity for which I created all of you. Now, number three. Jesus taught in favor of women and against the culture. There's some really really interesting stuff. Jesus' interactions with women in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Luke, are completely countercultural. You've got to remember, women weren't even taught to read. I mean, if you teach them to read, they're going to want to vote. Um, so in the old cultures, women weren't allowed to read. Women were often treated as property. And yet when Jesus interacts with those women... Every time he presents them, it's almost always positive. When there's a pairing between men and women, which Luke does, Luke pairs men and women all the time in the healing gospels. It's always in favor of the woman. Think about this. Before Jesus' birth, two people were visited by, by the angel Gabriel. One was Zechariah, who would become the father of John the Baptist, and the other was Mary, who would become the mother of Jesus. Both of them said, how can this be? Zechariah got struck mute so he couldn't speak till after the baby was born. Mary, on the other hand, was commended. Mary and her cousin Elizabeth prophesied over Jesus while he was still in the womb. The prophet Simeon and the prophetess Anna both prophesied over the infant Jesus together. Jesus consistently wove women in and out of his in, in and out of his teaching in a way that rabbis did not do. It's part of what made people so curious to watch him. In his first sermon, he engaged the audience with two Old Testament examples of God's love reaching beyond the Jews. 
One example was a woman. One example was a man. In Luke 15, there's a female-oriented parable of a lost coin about an old woman who lost a coin. And it's tucked in between two male-oriented parables, uh, uh, one of the lost sheep, one of the prodigal son. In Luke 18, there's a female-oriented prayer parable about praying consistently and persistently about a widow. And it's paired with a male-oriented prayer where this hypocrite is looking at a tax collector going, Thank you, God. I'm not like him. Jesus praises the woman. Even as he approached the crucifixion, Jesus stopped to address the female mourners. The female followers who were there and never abandoned him. And in a male-dominated culture, Jesus' attention to women throughout his preaching absolutely made him enemies and absolutely shocked the culture. This, By the way, this male-female thing works all the way through uh, Luke's healing accounts. Jesus healed a man of an unclean spirit. Then he healed Simon's mother-in-law. He healed a centurion's servant. Then he raised a widow's son out of compassion for the grieving mother. He healed a man with a demon. Then he healed a bleeding woman. And then he healed a synagogue ruler's daughter. Jesus' last healing act is of a woman with a disabling spirit. And when the synagogue ruler questioned why he would do that, Jesus called him a hypocrite and called her a daughter of Abraham. Woof. His elevation of women as moral examples was incredibly countercultural. He was sitting at a Pharisee's house. Pharisee threw a dinner party so he could look good and invite these people in to meet Jesus. And as they're sitting in there, a, a woman came in. Um, I think the, the old English words for her were uh, sinful woman. That's code term for hooker. So everybody knew what she did for a living? She came in and she sat at the feet of Jesus and she wept. Her tears fell on his feet so she used her hair to wipe her tears off of his feet and then she anointed his feet with oil to clean them. And when the guy throwing the party objected, God said to him, you kidding me? She has surpassed you on every count. She is more devout than you could ever dream of being. And over and over, Jesus turned the cultural norms upside down and he openly valued women. He underscores their equal status before God and God's desire for a personal relationship with them. Now, number four. Our culture chooses to mishear scripture and it chooses to uh, honestly throw out the context of scripture, the historical context of scripture. So let's go back to Harry Potter for a second. Can you put that next picture up? There is a scene in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It's in Harry's very first Quidditch match. Remember that? We see Snape watching the match, and we see him mumbling something over and over and over again while he's watching Harry Potter fly around and chase this little winged ball or something. And I remember looking at that thinking, should have shot him. 
He's putting a curse. He's trying to hurt Harry. That's what he's doing. He is absolutely after Harry there. In reality, he was actually muttering a protective charm for Harry. I misunderstood because I didn't trust Snape. We often misunderstand what God is saying when we don't trust God. This next passage, this is one of the passages we misunderstand. And ignorance of what's happening with this passage causes confusion. This is probably one of the most offensive passages in Scripture when it comes to men and women. Ephesians 5. For wives... This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now, we usually have at least three problems with this right out of the gate. One, submitting. Yet, wives submitting to their husbands is, well, it's stated at least three times in Scripture. And that's kind of a tough sell when a lot of us know wives who are way more competent than their husbands. You, some of you ladies are thinking secretly, my husband is an idiot. <laughs> I got news for you. Some of your husband's friends think your husband's an idiot too, so... You're not alone in that regard. So we understand sometimes there are women that are more competent than their husbands. And that makes that, that makes that passage objectionable. The other thing we don't like is wives submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. Now it's one thing to submit yourself to the self-sacrificing king of the universe. It's something else to you know, submit yourself to a guy who leaves his underwear behind the door on the floor when the hamper is less than 18 inches away. Right? Some of you women are out there going, you're waiting to make sure he can't see you, though, before you nod. And the third thing that really bugs us about that is the husband being the head of the wife. Are you kidding me? This seems to imply a hierarchy that's at odds with our equal status as image bearers of God, right? And so we're horrified when we hear those words and we get stuck there. But we need to go into the historical context. At the time, at the time Paul's writing these words, women were property, like cattle, like goats, like sheep. Women could be sold into slavery or put to death as part of the divorce. Wouldn't be having any child custody discussions after that. Right? Single women could be molested and could be raped with little to no consequence. What happens is Christian teaching, Jesus and Paul took all of that and they turned all of that upside down. Now, I want to show you what's placed on the husbands. Women go, oh, submit, man, that's horrible, that's horrible. 
You're not really paying attention to what's happening to the husbands in this same passage. Watch this. So four times, husbands are called to love their wives, right? Ephesians 5. For husbands, this means, circle the word love every time you see it in this. For husbands, this means love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. How do you love the church? He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself. His devotion to her is to be equal to his devotion to himself. There's a fourth time, Colossians chapter 3. Husbands, love your wives and be gentle with them. Why? Because wives were basically slaves. Okay, so trivia, ladies. Did you know that God never, commend, never, God never commands wives to love their husbands? They're like, hmm. <laughs> Scripture never once commands wives to love their husbands. Most of the marriages of that day were arranged, and a wife had no say. So his thing is, look, you can't get out of this. Clearly, it's your culture. But what you have to do is you have to respect your husbands. Treat them with respect. But get this. You're never told you have to love your husband. Your husband's told at least four times he has to love you. You're told to respect your husband. Check this out. Ephesians, well, what's where am I at here? Oh, First Peter, thank you. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Now, this part's caused a lot of chaos. She may be weaker than you are. You know what they're talking about? Physical strength. The term is physical. She might be weaker physically than you. And honestly, for most of your marriage, the man is the stronger person until about 61. And it's kind of a crapshoot. Gets a, little, gets a little careful there. Don't want to tick her off much. She can beat me up. She may be physically weaker than you are, but watch this. She is your what? Equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should. How should you treat her? With love and with respect. And husbands, if you don't, ladies, here's another thing. You're not given this warning, but the husband is. Treat her with respect. Treat her as you should. Why? So your prayers will not be hindered. Biblically, God demands a lot more of husbands than of wives. And he chose marriage to be a metaphor of the unity that he wants between his people and himself. But I want to here, here's, what this, here's what this misunderstanding comes down to. With that troublesome passage, people ignore the verse that starts that. 
So isn't it interesting? It says back in Ephesians 5.22, for wives, and then when we start the husband thing, it says for husbands this means. So what's the preface to that? What's the prequel that's happening there? Ephesians 5.21. And further, submit to who? That's to everybody. Men and women, husbands and wives, submit to one another. Then he just goes through and says, here's what this is going to look like. Here's some examples of this for our culture. Listen, Jesus gave himself for us, and Christians, male or female, are to follow his lead, and we submit to him first, which makes it possible for us to submit to others. So what do I do with this information today? Because there's a lot of information here. Some of you have a headache. I see it. Listen, so study this stuff for yourself. Quit cherry-picking verses. Look at the whole concept. See, contrary to what you say, Scripture does not put the husband's needs first, nor does it put the wife's needs first, though there's a lot more emphasis on the husband meeting her needs. Scripture does not say women are less gifted in leadership. Then our men. Paul lists nine women who were ministry leaders with him near the end of Romans. Women played a major role in the first century spread of Christianity. Scripture does not say that women should not work outside the home. Proverbs 31 is all about a woman who worked all over the place. Scripture does not say women should earn less than men. Do you realize Jesus never had a job? you realize when Jesus needed to go hang out somewhere you know where he went Mary and Martha's house do you realize that he was financially dependent on some of his female followers a lot of ancient textual and archaeological sources show that the early church was a majority female church. You know why? Because in the Greco-Roman world in the first and second and third centuries, the culture was disproportionately male. Why? Because they killed baby girls. Christianity stopped that. The number of women in the empire grew because Christians quit aborting and killing girls. See, so when you read Ephesians 5, we actually find out God values women so much. I mean, you realize women are created in the image of God in a way that a man is not created in the image of God. God created life. Yeah, the most amazing thing to me was after Caleb was born, our firstborn, when he was born. And I sat there thinking, this, this woman is amazing. She can grow a human being inside of her. And then after that, her body makes food to keep it alive. And she can change a diaper and act like it doesn't smell. I mean, this is like the most godlike thing I have ever seen. I have ever witnessed. Listen, Ephesians 5, when you read it in context, you realize Ephesians 5 is a scathing indictment of the culture and its treatment of both men and women. It called out for all the things it called against the culture for giving privilege to men and patronizing 
women. Ephesians 5 is a call for men and women to replay the character of Christ every day and to care for others selfishly and the needs of others. All right, there's so much more I could do with this, but I got to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to stop today and just look at some of the cold hard facts and realize that Christianity lifts women that Christianity lifts men, that it went against the culture and that we today in our country, that we benefit because of what Christianity rebelled against in the older cultures. Father, we thank you so much for loving us equally. We thank you for making us differently and yet valuing us as one body in marriage, and in the body of Christ. Father, thank you for this. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.